Greetings, humans. And any ghosts or malicious AI tuning in. You're listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR in Edmonton. With Belinda Ongaro. Dan Hackborn. And Timothy Arthur. For those of you who haven't tuned into Shout before, every month we pick a topic relevant to librarianship and information studies. We are a group of masters in library and information studies students here at the University of Alberta. And every month we bring you fresh library and information studies centric news. It's Fun Drive and we're recording this one hour special under the full moon on Halloween night. And in classic 2020 fashion, we've decided to have a video call to share some scary stories that we prepared, campfire style. All right, just let me screen share this fireplace sound generator. One second. And we're good to go. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the real thing. In our previous episode, we threw it back to some haunted library stories from season two of Shout. Can you believe we're on season five this year? Let's make it six seasons and a movie, hey, potential fun drive donors? Now, brace yourself for some blood-curdling, hair-raising tales of horror about cursed media. Dun, dun, dun. (gasps) Dan, how about you go first? I'm in the middle of roasting a vegan marshmallow over my space heater. It could be a while. All right. I heard this one from a friend of a friend of mine. There's something electric about the illicit thrill of knowing something you shouldn't. You see the trope reassert itself time and time again across genre and media. Forbidden romantic intrigue. The spy who learns too much. A poor academic driven mad by the knowledge of some existential terror. This narrative is so powerful that, at times, it crosses over, infecting the format itself, giving rise to tales about a cursed medium, and thinking along the lines of the signal of Videodrome, or the haunted cassettes of the Ring franchise, or the eerie lost children's program known as Candle Cove, or even some of the more outrageous rumors swirling around the dark web. And while there must be something even more primordial, a whispered story that the listener cannot unhear, something glimpsed that cannot be unseen, the artifact that holds the most magnetism for librarians, maybe even for Western culture, is the cursed book. Whether it is an unholy description of events or a grimoire containing ritualistic means to power, the idea exerts a gravity that ranges across fiction, perhaps most famously as H.P. Lovecraft's Necronomicon or Robert Chambers' play, The King in Yellow. But what do these things look like in real life? And I'm not talking about the forbidden books you'd find on the Vatican's prudish Index Librorum Prohibitorum, most of which are censored due to erotic content or content that runs counter to established Catholic dogma. I'd like to take this time to talk about how the tropes and stereotypes look in the harsh light of day. Does an authentic manifestation lose something, reality removing something of the aura of fear, or does the fact add a certain spine-chilling tremor? So I'll ask you to take a moment and imagine, in your mind's eye, the platonic ideal of the evil book, set upon a lectern, flickering candlelight illuminating the object. It is heavy, obviously, with a thick cover bound in some sort of leather. So this characteristic is one of the first things to address, anthropodermic bibliopegy, also known as binding a book in human skin. Though rare, yes, examples absolutely exist. 
Megan Rosenblum, a librarian, has written an entire book on the subject called Dark Archives, a librarian's investigation into the science and history of books bound in human skin. So if the topic appeals to you, I'd heartily recommend it. Typically, as it turns out, these morbid tones are more likely to be medical texts created by 18th or 19th century doctors than a warlock spellbook, which, you know, makes sense if we think about who had access to corpses combined with the knowledge and arrogance to make such an item. So perhaps surprisingly, books bound in human skin tend to fall in the realm of science rather than the supernatural. Let's return to the hypothetical mysterious book that occupies your thoughts, fills your waking hours. Another common characteristic of these items is the idea that they inspire an obsessive and feverish compulsion. An excellent historical example of this is a book that has been carbon dated to the 15th century. It is written in an indecipherable language and contains curious illustrations upon its vellum pages. It is known as the Voynich Manuscript. Allegedly created during the Italian Renaissance, the Voynich Manuscript has cultivated an aura of mystery due to the repeated attempts to decipher the language, which have all been unsuccessful, even when undertaken by professional linguists and cryptographers. The language is not a simple substitution cipher, rather, grammatical and statistical properties appear to propose a structure similar to the romanization system used for Mandarin Chinese. Since the text is unknown, the illustrations are used by Voynich scholars to organize the text and suggest some sort of unknown cosmology. Some have attempted to claim the entire manuscript is elaborate gibberish, though this begs another question regarding the nature of obsession. What would cause an individual in the 1400s to write 270 pages of gibberish? Who would have the time and resources for such an endeavor, and to what end? The Voynich Manuscript is now housed at Yale University in the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, where it continues to frustrate all attempts to interpret its secrets. So this idea of hidden knowledge also comes with a compelling counterpart that occurs frequently in narratives about cursed books. What if said knowledge is hidden for a reason? What if it is dangerous, even evil? Which brings us to the Grand Grimoire, written sometime between 1421 and the early 19th century. Although other grimoires have long been a fixture in the Western supernatural imagination, the Grand Grimoire, also known as the Red Dragon, is a particularly fun example since it contains instructions for the most infamous supernatural and cursed act of all. Its primary purpose is providing instructions on how to make deals with the devil. Yes, it is essentially a bargain with Lucifer for dummies. While other grimoires, like the Keys of Solomon, may include some information of this sort, there are also instructions for a number of different, often more mundane tasks, like finding stolen items, or love potions, or ceremonial perfume. The Grand Grimoire flips this, being notable for having a specific focus on this one thing that is pretty consistently agreed to be a very bad idea, and going into what must be a fair amount of detail on the subject. Not only does it distinguish between several aspects of the devil that you can summon, but it also gives details on constructing tools to coerce said devil into doing your bidding and the delicate art of drawing up an agreement with your infernal business partner. There have been several modern print editions of the text, and you can even access a copy on the internet, if you dare. So this is all well and good, but do any real cursed books exist? Well. 
Consider the orphan story by Martin de Leon y Cardenas and decide for yourself. The orphan story was written between 1608 and 1615, so if it had been published at the time, it would have been a contemporary of the granddaddy of the modern novelistic form, Don Quixote by Cervantes. If, that is. Though it was set to be published, it never made it to the printing presses for unknown reasons, and the manuscript disappeared from history until its rediscovery in the 1960s. Following this, several prominent Spanish scholars and academics attempted to finalize the publication of the novel due to its pedigree and potential place within the canon of the modern novel format, as well as the perspective it provides into colonial Spain. However, all of these individuals died from strange diseases and car accidents while attempting to finish publication of the novel, including Antonio Rodriguez Monino and Professor William C. Bryant. While the content of the novel itself, a fictionalized narrative of the author's own life, doesn't seem too supernaturally sinister, this string of deaths has led to rumors of a curse. In 2018, the orphan story was finally published, centuries after its writing, due to the work of Belinda Palacios, who has thus far circumvented the curse, perhaps breaking it once and for all. She reported that she was warned several times during her work by her peers about the potential cursed nature of the book. So do curses actually exist? Allow me to cop out with an I don't know answer. What would a curse look like in real life, stripped of any supernatural agent? Let's return to the orphan story for a second. The book is an account of the Spanish colonization of Peru and Bolivia, offering an uncritical perspective on some of the causes, including an insatiable desire for so-called adventure and wealth which would ultimately lead to the horrifying abuse of local indigenous peoples. The author discusses the awful conditions in the silver mines of Potosi, conditions which would lead to the Quechua name for the mine, the mountain that eats men. Over the course of 70 years, this small Incan hamlet would grow to the fourth largest city in the so-called Christian world at the time, leading to the enslavement of thousands of native people and abducted Africans. This is a pattern that would repeat over and over again throughout the European colonization of the world, the causes and consequences rippling throughout generations, wounding entire nations and landscapes. Is there any word that comes close to capturing this kind of multi-generational trauma, a term that signifies consignment to an evil fate or an evil which has been invoked? What does a curse look like in real life? And who would bring one into being? That was both unsettling and truly thought-provoking, Dan. Thank you. Timothy, why don't you go next? All right. My story sort of flips the idea of a cursed book on its head because it's about the dark side of a medieval manuscript that warns against witchcraft. And that manuscript is located right here in Edmonton. So I spoke earlier with two researchers who discovered it miscatalogued in the University of Alberta Library's special collections. Here's a recording of that conversation. I'm Timothy Arthur and I have the pleasure to be joined in a call by two scholars of medieval history, Francois Pajot and Dr. Rob Desjardins. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting us. So first of all, can you each introduce yourselves? Um, who are you and what's your background in studying medieval history? Uh, my name is Francois Pajot, as you said, and um, this is my second career. 
I was in the media. I was um, program manager at uh, CBC Radio Canada for a number of years in Alberta. And uh, I got uh, tired of the cuts. So I decided to leave that and go back to my first love, which was history, more specifically um, medieval history. So I did my master's in um, pre-modern history and uh, I'm doing my PhD right now, 15th century uh, Europe and intellectual networks. And what about you, Rob? And I'm Rob uh, Desjardins, or Desjardins, and uh, yeah, like Francois, my my involvement in history is kind of like a second track in my life. I'm um, I've worked for a number of years as a graduate writing advisor in the Academic Success Center. Right now, I'm a communicator with Faculty of Graduate Studies and Research, but decided to, like Francois, decided a number of years ago because I really had a love for. Uh, things medieval and things historical and things textual to take uh, uh, an opportunity to study it intensively. And it was a great way to kind of decorate our lives with all this interesting material. And what is uh, interesting is that um, we didn't study together. There's, uh, you know, we've got a few years difference and, uh, but we happen to, to be working with the same person who, who was uh, our supervisor. Uh, Andrew Gao, and it's through him that we met and we started working on uh, Tinktor's treatise. Oh, absolutely. That was, uh, it was, Andrew was sort of the connecting thread that brought Francois and me together. Uh, yeah, and we've been good friends and colleagues for a number of years now. So Tinktor's treatise, this is the uh, sinister manuscript that you uncovered in, in the Bruce Peel Special Collection of the Library. Rob, so you were, I understand, the first to sort of come upon it and rediscover it. Is that right? Sort of. And I, I wish it were a story that involved me kind of hobbling down the aisles and finding this book kind of buried in a stack in the back of a uh, uh, of an aisle in the peel. What actually happened was, um, this is back in 2005, so 15 years ago now, um, the peel was putting on a uh, uh, sort of an open house, a tour for new graduate students at the U of A in medieval studies and English history and other fields. And I happened at the time to be working with Andrew looking for sort of books that he could use for his undergraduate teaching. So I was checking out what the Peel had to offer. And I was completely amazed to see the range of early modern holdings at the Peel, these old, old books from the 16th century, the 17th century. And what blew me away as a person who was studying um, Burgundian history in the 15th century is that the U of A had two Burgundian manuscripts, uh, has two Burgundian, full Burgundian manuscripts from the, you know, a spectacular sort of court of Burgundy, a place where e even as it was sort of the era of the sort of discovery of the printing press, still in the 15th century, luxury books that were produced by hand still had a certain kind of cachet. They were, um, they were prestige items. And uh, two of those items that were, had been produced in the Court of Burgundy, this rich center of book production, were right here at the U of A. One of them was this sinister old book, uh, Tinkter's book. Mm -hmm. So uh, you came upon it in the library and it was miscatalogued, is that correct? Yeah, or it, yeah, precisely. It had been sort of understood to be a book um, was labeled to be a book of sermons um, against uh, a sect of 
people, a sect of sort of um, Christian believers that was founded in the 12th century, kind of flourished in the 13th century called Waldensians. Waldensians believed in all kinds of radical and crazy ideas like the equality of the sexes and that uh, priests shouldn't be rich men. I mean, just, you know, that the, the average person should be able to preach the gospel, things like that. So they were, they were um, persecuted by the Catholic church in the middle ages. So to come upon, you know, a book of sermons against Waldensians doesn't seem like such a strange thing, uh, except that when upon opening up the book and looking inside, the contents didn't seem to match that description and the content seemed uh, bizarre and kind of otherworldly. You know, there were references to all sorts of things, um, uh, it, even in kind of the table of contents at the beginning of the book that I couldn't understand at first. You know, uh, it was talking about uh, Antichrist coming. It was talking about uh, demons uh, <laughs> performing all kinds of nefarious acts in the world. I was like, what is this about? Uh, I was puzzled. So our supervisor, uh, Francois, and my supervisor at the time uh, solved the mystery when I brought him in to look at the book. And it turned out that, yeah, this wasn't a book about Waldensians at all. It was one of the earliest um, books written about what would later come to be understood as diabolical witchcraft, the kind of witchcraft that uh, was imagined during the burning times, during the... Um, the persecution of witches in early modern Europe. So then, Francois, how did you get involved in the project of researching the manuscript? Yes, um, although um, um, although Rob was still working with Andrew, uh, he was not uh, in any kind of hierarchical uh, position, but I was. And since um, I was, um, I had a lot of interest in in uh, demonology and also a knowledge of Middle French, uh, which is quite interesting because the manuscript is in uh, Middle French. Andrew said, you know, maybe we should get together, uh, the three of us, and, and look at, at the manuscript and do a, what they call a concordance, look at, at other manuscripts, other copies of the same uh, manuscript uh, elsewhere in the world. There's a copy in Paris, another one in Brussels, and there's one in the Bodleian Library in, the, in the Oxford, right? So we started working together that way. And <clears throat> we call ourselves the Tinktor project uh, because we basically worked a couple of nights uh, every week for years on uh, up until we had enough material to publish a book about that manuscript and, and some other things. So that's how I was involved. And the three of us have been working together for 15 years now. So then that book was uh, The Arras Witch Treatises, right? Which you published in 2016. And that included another text um, translated from, we, we'll get to this, with the same trials that the uh, Tinkter's Treatise came out of. So I have to say that I really enjoyed your translation. Um, I thought it was extremely readable. Um, I actually enjoyed reading the text a lot. So thank you for that. Um, so who is this mysterious Tinctor who wrote the treatise? I was just going to say, well, Tinctor is a, quite a respectable um, theologian, 15th century theologian, uh, who was from the Duchy of Burgundy, so which is today, most of it is Belgium or the northern part of France. 
And he was uh, 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 quite respected. He had been uh, dean of the uh, Cologne University in, uh, in Germany. Uh, he wrote about um, Aristotle. He wrote about Albertism and, and Thomism. So he was well respected, but he was also a firm believer <laughs> in witchcraft and that society at the time was under attack by literally thousands of people that were um, devil worshippers. And when he wrote the book, it, it was following um, a trial that was happening in Arras, which was a city in the Duchy of Burgundy, not too far from where he was. And uh, he wrote it to convince people that there was a good reason uh, you know, he came up with arguments saying we have to do these trials, we have to persecute these people because otherwise we are doomed and uh, the devil will take control of our society. So I think his own personal beliefs were, were sincere and genuine. Uh, unfortunately, um, what happened in, 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 that tr in those trials in 1460-61 is that it was started by inquisitors and by uh, people that had a bit more power than usual because the, the bishop of Arras was away in, in Italy. So they took upon them, themselves to start, you know, um, asking a lot of people to denounce other people and to, uh, um, um, to make sure that they were going to arrest everybody that was involved supposedly in, in, in the Sabbath, which is uh, the nightly uh, gatherings of witches. Uh, by the way, at, at the time, witches were not just women. It was women, men, uh, there wasn't yet uh, uh, such a um, um, concentration of, of, of women considered to be witches. And they got to a point where they, they had the first wave, they had maybe, you know, 10, 15 people that they had arrested, tortured, uh, um, and they wanted to stop. So they went to see uh, one of the lords that was responsible for the area. And he saw clearly a way to arrest more people, but people of means to get money and uh, to basically uh, enrich himself and his minions. So it was co-opted by the temporal um, powers, clerks and, and, and lords. And that's where we see that even though some of the, the, the religious, the clerks, the religious people were, did believe in it, um, it was, the lords that said, okay, keep going until you get like up to a lord and we get the money we want. Rob, anything to add? That was great. I, I would just add too that, you know, one of the really interesting things about Tincture is that as Francois said, this is a guy who, as far as we're concerned, as far as we can tell from all the biographical records that we have, was not a fanatic. He wasn't some sort of sociopath. Uh, he was a well-respected and probably well-intended intellectual, but he was doing a, 
the work that he was doing uh, was sort of extremely sinister in its own way, because before this time, uh, before the 15th century, the idea that we have of witchcraft today sort of stems from this period, the idea of diabolical witchcraft. So the idea that, for instance, you know, there's this sort of depraved group of people who go out and fly on brooms and, and cast spells and hover around cauldrons and, you know, drink children's blood and have orgy, all, the, all these, these sort of horrible ideas. They hadn't really existed in a coherent form before the 15th century. Um, it, it, all of these ideas kind of came from a group of different medieval sources. And they had been put up in different contexts as accusations against groups of others, against other people, you know, sort of heretics, Jews, uh, even Christians in, in the late antique period. They, but they were all a sort of a disparate group of stories that sort of just came down. And, and, it, and it took intellectuals, it took university people, it took churchmen like Tinkter to create a whole coherent narrative about what witches do. And this hadn't really been done before the 15th century. And while Tinker wasn't the first intellectual to start doing this, he was among the first. So to, to make a sort of a, a narrative of oppression that would really stick for two, 300 years after this, uh, it took an intellectual like Tinker to do it. A well-intended intellectual, but, but there you go. Mm -hmm. The importance of Tinkter um, is really in the, let's call it the, the archaeology of the construction of the witchcraft that we know today. Because before, let's say, uh, <clears throat> 30, 40 years ago, everybody was talking about the Maleus Maleficarum, which was the, the Hammer of the Witches, written and published in uh, 1487. So everybody said this is really the first one but what we've been working on are uh, books. There's a few, a handful of books like Tinkter who basically uh, already have most of the notions, most of the intellectual constructions that you will find in uh, the Maleus already there, but it will take another two generations before it will be um, in a sense accepted as, as common sense that there are witches and we should uh, uh, eradicate them. Mm. So this is the interest from a historian, uh, historian's point of view is the archeology span of this construction of the concept of witchcraft. Just so one then, more quick point to sort of to expand on that one, one bit more is that we often think of even Monty Python, right? Everybody thinks of witchcraft as something coming from the Middle Ages, right? It was an invention that superstitious peasants and rubes before the Renaissance, before the age of, of intellectuals would have come up with. In fact, you go 100, 200, 300 years before Tinkter, people would have said, that's ridiculous. Uh, the, 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 the church would, would have held, would have dismissed it out of hand. Nobody talked about these things happening until some intellectuals in the 15th century gave them credibility by drawing them all together and tying these really elaborate arguments together as to how you can justify a claim. For instance, that somebody is going to get on a broom or be carried through the air in the dark of night to go to an orgy. It takes an intellectual to, to make a society believe something like that. And that's what happened only in the 15th century. What must be said of the context at the time, because you know that's the question we ask ourselves. 
why why at that particular period did people start believe to, to believe these these crazy stories? Well, I'm tempted to say, you know, talk about uh, um, fake news and, and everything that we're living right now. And, and you kind of understand better today. I mean, really today in, in 2020, uh, a lot more than let's say 10 years ago or 15 years ago, you would have understood why people can believe crazy stories because we, we, we are uh, witness, witnesses of, of what's happening with the QAnon, QAnon thing. And uh, people truly believe there's, there's a, a ring of, of pedophiles uh, that, that goes up, you know, the, the, the American government and, and pizzerias and, 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 and the Clintons and everybody. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Or they also believe that there's lizard people that uh, are hiding and they control the world. But they do believe that. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people believing that. So in a sense, it's easier today to, to understand what was happening in the, the, the 15th century and, and what is what we can compare those two radically different times is the insecurity. There's a great insecurity happening. At the time, it was the, the church was felt that it was losing control of um, lay piety. Uh, because people were taking upon themselves, uh, uh, they invented new rituals like the rosary and, and other things. So the, the clerks and, and, and the, the clerics felt they were losing control. And at the same time, they felt it was the, the, the rise of the Ottoman Empire. They were getting closer and closer. Constantinople was lost. It became Istanbul. So they were at, at, at Europe's door. So there was a sense of panic, of paranoia, which I think uh, was fertile, fertile ground for those kinds of ideas to, to gel and to come together. That's really interesting because I was going to ask you just that, which is since you published this in 2016, you know, I was wondering if it had colored your perception of events since then. What about you, Rob? in so many ways. Uh, we, about four years ago, when um, American politicians were talking about, suddenly talking about the efficacy of torture and waterboarding, for instance, um, we wrote an op-ed piece that didn't get accepted by the New York Times, but we tried, uh, in which we, we looked at not exactly the Tincture manuscript, but an associated a document that we're also translating, which is a set of uh, records of the witchcraft trials that happened in Aras. And it's remarkable to look at the kinds of things that the uh, defense attorneys uh, argued in, 14, in the 1460s. Uh, the things they said about the, the fact that waterboarding and torture don't produce reliable evidence wouldn't be out of place today in sort of an Amnesty International case. Okay, so there, there are so many residents, resonances um, at the current day. Um, Francois brings up sort of the idea that, that we have right now this sort of epidemic of fake news, of people buying into sort of paranoid conspiracies. And I, I guess I would add to that the, what, what we see, especially in Tincture in an, and in all the Aras documents, is that one of the important ingredients in a good conspiracy theory is some um, some sanction from a, a powerful, uh, well-respected 
uh, articulate individual. One of the things we have to remember is that logic based on faulty premises can take you in all kinds of really weird and disturbing directions. Johannes Tinkter is, 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 a, is, is a tremendously effective logician. His dialectics, his reasoning is perfect. And yet he's able to conclude, for instance, that people are stealing off in the dark of night and, you know, worshiping the devil in the form of a goat. He's able to use logic to prove that <laughs> he has some faulty premises. So, I mean, it just, it, there, there are a lot of things that are happening today now. And a, and a lot of the kind of types of authority that people will sometimes appeal to that we have to be really careful about appealing to that, that sort of authority in and of itself. Um, I'd like to talk about um, the fact that we did uh, do the book. It was published uh, in the States and, and it's all dandy and great. But what we're also very proud of is the online exhibition that we worked on with the Bruce Peel Special Collection Library and uh, for which uh, the library uh, won uh, a prize. Uh, and for us, it's a great way to reach more people because it's a way to um, talk to um, the grand public, you know, the, the public at large instead of, of a public of specialists. And uh, this is the kind of collaboration that we are actually uh, wanting to, to do again. Uh, we've developed a, a project. We just need to finish the second book <laughs> on, on, on those trials. And after that, there is another project on, on the shelves with um, uh, the Bruce Peel Special Collection Library. And uh, it's, it's a great way that they have found to reach people not only in, in Alberta or in Edmonton, but throughout the world. And since you mentioned the Bruce Peel Special Collections Library, let's go back to the manuscript itself. So this particular manuscript housed in Edmonton, um, what is uh, special about it? So Francois talked about kind of the work that we've done with it. It's all been a delight. It's all been so much fun. Some of it's been pretty grueling work though. Uh, so when he talks about doing concordances, what, one of the things we had to do to kind of get a sense of where this one French copy of Johannes Tinkter's treatise. There are only four, as you said, there are only four French copies, uh, handwritten copies that still exist in the world. Um, we, we were trying to establish what relationship did it have with the other ones, right? The process of doing that is kind of, it's, it's grueling, but it's also really interesting. You essentially sort of have to go not just word by word, but almost letter by letter and compare each text to the other text. And talking about logic again, this is really interesting kind of logical pro a problem and process because what you said, what you start to see taking shape when you compare the text that closely is you realize, wait a second, the cl most closely related version of this text clearly because of some various kinds of sort of um, um, evidence that we have, uh, uh, evidence in the illustrations and the paper and other things. The closest related text is the one that scholars felt previously was the oldest text, and that's the one that's housed in Brussels. We start comparing it closely to the Brussels text, we realize a couple of things. Number one, the kind of 
calligraphy and design of our text is, super, is superior to the Brussels text. But not only that, you go word by word and you start to notice that there are phrases that are missing from the Brussels text that aren't missing from the Alberta text, but not the other way around. And what we realized from that is that our text couldn't have been copied from Brussels but because of a set of other uh, circumstances and evidence, we know that it, Brussels probably was copied from ours. So that led us to understand that how this, this strange text that took a very strange and circuitous path to get from the Low Countries into England to Canada eventually was probably uh, out of the existing uh, copies of Tang through the French copies, this is probably the oldest one, which is really cool. It's, it's, a, it's a small thing, but to realize that Alberta has this really, really old manuscript is, is really exciting. You know, for, we're almost sure that it um, basically found its way from, that it was produced in, in uh, the Duchy of Burgundy, but probably for an English client because the uh, little uh, finestra, the little uh, window uh, in front of the book with the title is an Anglo-Burgundian uh, uh, so it's a, a mix of you know, French and, and English in a sense. And it's probably one of the reasons why people lost track of it because it wouldn't take long uh, uh, with the Reformation, the English Reformation, when uh, people started to loot abbeys <laughs> and take all the, of the books and everything. So it probably, fell into the hands of, of somebody else, or it was uh, taken from, um, let's say, somebody close to the royal family, because the, 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 the York family was, had very close ties with the um, Duke of Burgundy. So we think, you know, with the, the War of the Roses, it went one way and another way, so it got lost there, and we lost its track for um, what, maybe 200 years, more or less. And then we find it in, in Wales. And from Wales, we have a couple of, uh, you know, 18th, 19th century. Well, we have, you know, information, but then we lose uh, all information about it up until the time that uh, an Englishman comes to work in Canada, Dr. Lund. And that's where we, we uh, find a trace again, but it's only from the 1960s up to today. So we're still working. It's a, a very hard process because there's, there's little information except there's still ownership inscriptions in the manuscript. So some of them are easy to, to find. Others are still a mystery to us, but I think it's the, the only way we are going to eventually get more information on ownership is by identifying uh, those names, which are really difficult. And, and there's some of them are, are like uh, monograms made with letters. So it's also a puzzle. Could you talk about those monograms? Because I found that really interesting. Yes, the monogram is, is really uh, tantalizing because you can identify a few letters, but you know, it's like a design. You have like four, five, six letters 
all written together to create um, um, a logo kind of thing. And it was, um, uh, it was a, a fashion. It was very in for people to do that already by the end of the 15th century, all the way to the 18th century. So um, I've started looking uh, in so many places and we've contacted people that are specialists in, in recognizing those, those monograms. And uh, we haven't had any success yet, but we've identified enough letter that it could be, I'm just saying that because it would work Morgan, but written in the old way, M-O-R-G-A-N-E, with an E at the end. That is one possibility out of, of many others. It's a, it's a mystery. And it, like every good mystery, uh, you have to find all the clues before you, you find the culprit. It's so interesting that so much of this is like a, some sort of mystery novel or something because it inverts the sort of literary trope where there's some sinister book, you know, that is actually full of spells or something. Well, given the genealogy of, you know, the anti-witch sentiment, maybe that itself is much more sinister. And a book about that is really the scary thing. And um, I have to to specify, I think I forgot to to, I told myself beforehand, you know, I have to remember this. It's probably one of the first state-sponsored witch hunt in the 15th century. Because uh, people, as, as Rob said earlier, you know, when uh, Monty Python or, you know, the, the, the popular uh, culture understanding of witchcraft keeps referencing the Middle Ages. Well, there was no witch hunt in the Middle Ages. I mean, no, uh, uh, not in the scale that we will see basically from 1530 to 1730. Those are the two centuries where, you know, if you're a conservative estimate is between 60 and 80,000 people were uh, killed as witches. And that's not taking into account the people that were arrested and tortured and then released. So it was a real phenomenon, but it was not a medieval phenomenon, you know? Uh, so what's also interesting with our book, it's because it's related to the first, one of the first state sponsored um, um, witch hunt, which settles or, or basically creates the preconditions for the following ones to, to happen. You know, it, 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 it clearly uh, lays the ground rules uh, and a lot of the things that you find in the Arras trial of 1460 are stereotype kinds of things that you will find in the next two centuries. So that's why it's also really interesting to study this precursor in a sense. It's also, um, the book is also kind of a treasure for the people of Alberta. If you're like us and if you're inclined toward mystery and inclined toward these kinds of human stories, when we start talking about just the question of who might have owned it first and how it was, how it traveled through England, southwestern England, Wales to Canada, what we do know from some of the ownership inscription, there, there are all kinds of interesting stories 
about the people who've been involved with it along the way. I mean, one of the one of the owners is a guy named Sir Herbert Mackworth, who was a an industrialist and a parliamentarian uh, in um, in Southeast Wales, and he was uh, in Parliament giving speeches about taxation of the American colonies around 1776. I mean, there's there's just all kinds of it, it's it's a it's a book that is so old. I mean, one of the things too, when I show it to students that I always emphasize is we're talking about a book here that is, you know, 300 years older than the United States, 400 years older than Canada, a hundred years. It was produced in the form you see it right now with ink that is still as vivid and as red and as, and as, you know, uh, eye catching as the day it was produced a hundred years before Shakespeare was born. And the lives that it's lived and the, the places that it's traveled, as Francois said, probably came to England in the retinue of, if not an English king himself, then one of his courtiers. We know from because it's a princely manuscript, nobody else would have been able to afford it. And because of that English script, uh, it probably it may well have gotten caught up in the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII and went from ownership in noble hands to ownership some nobody out in out in sort of out in rural England for for one or two hundred years. There are all kinds of stories attached to the book, and um, uh, it it really is a, just a remarkable treasure uh, for us and for the people of Alberta to have and to have the chance to keep investigating it and kind of uncovering all these layers is just a real privilege. I'd like to talk about this book as a material object because this is also a very fascinating story because uh, we, we have uh, in North America, more, more especially in Western Canada, there's not that many um, manuscripts from the 15th century. We have some, Calgary, the University of Calgary has some, uh, uh, they try to specialize in Victoria as well and in, in um, Vancouver. But our book, uh, it's physical, uh, characteristics are uh, are really giving us a peek at what was the most common type of books for rich people. Uh, I mean, for for let's say royalty, and there is a a uh, painting by Roger van der Weyden, which represents an author offering a book to Philip the Good, who was the Duke of Burgundy. And when you look at, the, at the, the painting and you look at the book in the hands of the author, it is so similar to the one that we have here in Edmonton. It's, it's got the, the covers are, um, it's skin or, or leather over um, um, pieces of wood. And then it's got, it's got some um, um, metal rivets. And also it has two uh, leather straps it's actually a thing of beauty. And our book is, is fairly similar to that one, although the, the color has faded through the years. Could you talk a bit more about the book as sort of an artifact? Um, I should say that uh, there's a digitized version available online um, on archive.org and the Bruce Peel um, special collections collection there. Um, that everybody can look at. And it's really striking how sort of ominous looking it is. Maybe that's just, I've been primed to see old books that way, but it really has a very striking physical form. 
So our our, uh, our former supervisor Andrew used to say, and I I, I completely agree with this. It it looks sort of like the sort of book you'd expect to find in the Malfoy's library and in, in Harry Potter. I mean, it has it really has that sinister sort of medieval look. Precisely as Francois said, because we associate that kind of book that were that kind of image with books that were produced in the Middle Ages for the well-to-do. And it, it is a really remarkable um, book uh, physically in the sense that you can deduce a lot of things just by, just by you know, running your hand over it or thinking about the significance of some of the things that you see. So for instance, it has these, as Francois said, it has these knobs or sort of these brass stands on either side of the book that stick out. Uh, the reason that that's, a, a, a typical of a, of a princely book, a very high quality book that was that would have been kept in in a princely library in a form that it could be sort of rested on a shelf and then opened up. And the the brass stands kept the wood or whatever table surface that it was on from making too much contact with the velvet. So on our book, one of this one of the two covers, the velvet, it's original brown velvet from you know 550 years ago it's still plush in places like you could sort of see how it's been protected over all these years um you you sort of you open up the book and uh you can you can learn about um what it meant to buy a very expensive book at the time we're not talking about paper we're talking about parchment or vellum which is to say animal skins one of the things that you note when you read the tincture book there aren't a lot of holes in that vellum. There aren't a lot of stitch marks. All of the edges of the pages are very crisp and precise. And what that tells us is that, you know, when, when they used to sort of make parchment, when they'd make vellum for use in these books, they would stretch it out on a rack, dry it, scrape it, stretch it again, dry it, scrape it again. And only some of the animal skin would, be, would really be used for prime manuscript writing. It was in the center where you had fewer uh, irregularities. It wasn't curved. It wasn't buckled. Well, our, we pro it's probably calfskin, I think. It's just sort of the finest quality. It's soft and supple. What's also really great and interesting with this book is the fact that it was produced at a moment, the exact moment in time when move movable type was being invented. And Paper had been in use for probably 60, 70 years uh, extensively by chanceries everywhere. But if you wanted to do something for rich people, you did it with uh, vellum. And so what, what, what's extraordinary is at that time, just to give you an example, buying a book was the equivalent of buying a luxury car today. So you would have to have the equivalent of $60,000, $70,000 to invest because it was handmade by probably three people at least. One uh, was the person that copied it. The other one was an artist that did the illumination in the pages. And the third one was the one who did the binding. So, and sometimes uh, to give you an example, a Bible would, take up to a year to, to produce. So you have to pay the salary of the copist for a year, plus the illustration, plus the binding. So you get a sense of how luxurious the object was and that not everybody could have one. I, I was wondering about the fact that it's such a, 
a luxury item, yet it's written in the vernacular in French rather than in Latin. I, that just made me a little bit curious. I would have expected. It's very significant. Well, and, and it's because it's a translation. So the, the person who's writing this uh, book is a churchman. Um, normally, and in the case of Tincture's treatise, the original version was written in Latin. But this is, this is a very interesting book. It is a treatise because like, it sort of has an overall structure of an academic argument, such as you'd see from other people in, in the 15th century. But scholars are, are, have suggested that it might be a kind of a composite text because it, effectively it's, it's, the structure of this book is really interesting. First of all, he, this, the author is a fanatic when it comes to witchcraft, but he's also a very good writer. And he's a former uh, dean of theology at one of U Europe's leading universities, the University of Cologne. Okay, so he knows how to write and he knows how to write for different audiences. So his original Latin version contained um, one section which is these really harsh, uh, um, emotional harangues directed toward especially princes and uh, high level churchmen who had the power to persecute other people, telling them that, you know what, he didn't make specific, specific reference to Aras, but it's in the context of what's going on in Aras. These people who are behaving in this way, who are having these Sabbaths and these orgies and all this sort of thing, this is such a serious problem and it's going to bring on the end of the world. That's how serious this problem is. So it's these very almost kind of fanatical, extreme sermons addre addressing these audiences. Now, the second part of the book is, a, is, is more of a kind of a, a how-to guide or an explanation of exactly how witchcraft works. And in, in the case of sort of demonological witchcraft, it works through the intercession of demons in the world. So... It, the second part of the book answers a whole bunch of sort of practical intellectual questions. Um, if someone claims that a person was carried through the air at night, did that really happen or was it just in their imagination? And does that matter? Right. Questions like that, where you sort of figure out the how and the why of the witchcraft accusations. Um, th there's scholars have thought that maybe these were different texts that were sort of brought together in this form. Again, another reason why again we're you know we're, we're so lucky to have this text because in one book it manages to exemplify all of the tools that an intellectual in the 15th century could bring to bear if they really wanted to persecute someone because the first part of the book is rhetorical first part of the book is an argument it's a, it's a it's a stump speech the second part of the book is logical it's it's based on kind of what's called the scholastic method making, you know, laying out premises and drawing conclusions through systematic argumentation to answer the kinds of questions. And in some cases, the kinds of questions that inquisitors might have at trials, you know, what if, what if they claim that they didn't intend to do this? Well, we can conclude that whether they intended to or not, it, you know, th these were the sorts of questions that, that, it, that it would wrestle with. So together uh, this book, exemplifies the worst things that a person in a position of power and an intellectual could do to harm other people in 15th century Europe. And the fact that it was in French is probably because he was aiming to talk to the people of power in, in Burgundy. So that's why this book was really aimed at the highest level of power of the elite. So because 
the original was probably in Latin and, and the version, actually the French version has got a bit less of that scholastic stuff in, in some places. So that's how we know it was. It was, I think um, Tinctor wanted the Duke of Burgundy and his entourage to understand how important it was to hunt the witches. By the way, one more quick point on that. And you're right, sorry, I didn't get to that was the, that was the point is that the, is that this was a, this was a translation for the, no, the non churchmen for the non Latin speaking people so that it could have a political effect in the society. One other really interesting thing is that we've talked about the four manuscript copies of this book, but also this book was one of the very first books that was ever printed in the Low Countries uh, by a printer named Calar Mancion. So people who would be sort of high ranking and wealthy members of the, uh, of the sort of middle class or burger class, they had access to this book too in French. So it had a wide reach and it was, that's why it was sort of deliberately translated into French. And by the way, Calar Mancion was the first printer of English books. So there you go. Since you brought up the differences between the Latin and the French version, I also found it very funny how he refused to go into detail about some of the the nature of the sacraments in the in the uh, witches' Sabbath. <laughs> um, he does. We had we had to relegate the details to the footnote because it didn't appear in the French version. And and if you look at <clears throat> three books, and that's you know part of what we we find interesting. There's three books that are fairly similar. There's the second book that we translated, which is anonymous, uh, which is usually we, we call it the Recollectio. And uh, it's also about the Waldensians. And it's less, um, less uh, skillful in using the scholastic concepts, but it's more emotional. And it's written by somebody who was there when the victims were tortured. That is uh, clear as day because they, he, the author talks uh, about by name some of the people that were accused and some of the tortures that were applied. So this Recollectio, another one by another guy called uh, Nicolas Jacquier, who was living also in the, the Duchy of Burgundy, those three books basically um, are like mirrors one with the other and they were all used to create what we will find in the Malus Malefica room 25 years later. I mean we're still working right now on uh, the original trial documents of uh, 1460-61 um, were destroyed because there was an appeal made at the Parliament of Paris. And we have all of the appeals. So it's a lot of documentation and uh, afferent documents from everything that happened. You know, one city talking to another. Have you got the same problem with those crazy inquisitors? And uh, they're confiscating their goods. Uh, we are protected by the Duke. So, I mean, there's all of these informations. And ultimately what happens is for political reasons, I mean, they, they, the appellants win in 1467, okay? They win 1469. There's a judgment that, you know, is in favor of, of, of the victims. 
but you have to wait until 1491. For other considerations, we're, we're in a totally different era. All of the actors are, are dead and everything. But that's when for political reason, they uh, make a, a big splash about um, this judgment. And because they need the people of Arras to, to like the king and everything. And anyways, it's, it's another story. But one of the things they do is to honor the memory of the victims, they ask that all of the trial documents from the original trial be destroyed. So that's why we don't have the original ones. We only have the appeals, which refer to it a lot. And we also have some chroniclers, one of them in particular, who seem to have in, in his hands uh, uh, the original documents. Uh, because there's some details that he wouldn't have been able to have unless he had the original documents. So anyways, all of that, um, uh, those documents, we are preparing a second book on that. Uh, translation of all of those documents. So we're 85, 90% done. So hopefully by 2021, uh, we should be able to, to publish it. Just with Tinkter, there's a thousand, it opens up a thousand stories and mm -hmm. a thousand different sort of areas of inquiry. But the, the, um, the translations of these Aras documents, like it's a whole wide range of documents for translating. So like, like legal documents, um, correspondence, chronicles, and it's just so intriguing. Like when Francois said earlier on about how, you know, a witch hunt could start as a legitimately sort of paranoid religious accusation. But very quickly when you have people in, and late medieval courts were as, were as um, like Byzantine and feuding as they make it look like on the BBC, right? I mean, you had one group of nobles trying to use Aras to kind of get other nobles in trouble. And we can see just the hints of these things. We don't see the full outline, but it's just, it's so fascinating that the, the number of human stories that these sources lead to is, is really interesting. That's really interesting. And I really do recommend the book you've already published, which is the Aras uh, treatises. Again, I think it was a great translation. I, extremely fun to read, so. Um, so is there anything else you would like to add? It's Halloween. Read a book about witches, yeah. but, <laughs> you know, uh, not the usual ones. Read, you know, a, sco a scholarly book about witches. I think you're going to learn a lot. Well, it's scary how relevant that still feels today. Don't you think, Dan? Dan? Where did Dan go? internet connection problems hmm well i guess we'll just take a commercial break yeah okay good idea as bits of sand pass from the top part of the hourglass through to the bottom part of the hourglass so do the days of fun drive where am i you're safe with me angela who's Angela, I, I thought she was dead. No, you just have amnesia, remember? No. Well, that's all. What year is it? You're going to have to help me out here. Stan, it's some non-specific point in the future in which you're still the same age, but I have aged a couple of decades and am now played by an actor of a different nationality. Tell me one thing before I go. Is there still a CJSR? I, I don't understand what you're saying, Angela. CJSR? I, I've never heard of such a thing. Oh! Doctor, come quickly. You and your dollars have the power to cancel this trope opera today and help keep CJSR's vital original programming on the air for at least another year. 
780-492-2577. You can't stop the sands of time, but throwing loonies at the hourglass itself kinda helps. And we're back. But still no Dan. Uh, a Belinda, I guess you can share your cursed media story. I'll, I'll try and get a hold of him by phone. All right, here it goes. Warning. The information you are about to hear is classed by some as an information hazard. If taken seriously, knowledge of the topic that follows could cause existential dread, nightmares, indigestion, and irrational fear of technological devices. Listen at your own risk. The story goes that it all started in 2014. It was a typical day on the Less Wrong blog, until a user who went by the name Roko changed the fate of mankind forever. First, it's worth mentioning for context's sake that the Less Wrong blog is a forum for academic conversations surrounding the singularity and futurism. Roko proposed the following philosophical thought experiment. Suppose in the future there is a malevolent, although well-intentioned, artificial intelligence called the Basilisk, whose task is to optimize civilization. If you, having now learned of its future existence, do not help it come into being, then it will destroy you. Essentially, upon learning of this, you are presented with two choices. Either commit yourself to helping the basilisk come into existence, or do nothing, and subject your future self to the possibility of eternal damnation and torture. That's a problem for future me, you might think. But is it? If this AI is all-powerful, wouldn't it be able to reach into the past and preemptively eliminate anyone who will not contribute to their existence? Couldn't you be targeted at any moment? Thus, we have an information hazard. The mere exposure to this idea is hypothetically damning. But it's just a silly notion. Who could take this seriously, you might wonder? Well, the founder of the Less Wrong blog kind of did. He called out Roko for being clever enough to come up with such a dangerous thought, but stupid enough to post it. That's not to say that he believed it was true, but that he feared the negative consequences of the post. The thought experiment goes further. This is where TDT, Timeless Decision Theory, comes into play. This part gets a bit confusing, and it draws from an equally baffling experiment called Newcomb's Paradox, which involves a super-intelligent alien. The alien offers you two boxes. A has $1,000, and B might have $1 million. Your options are to take box A and B, or just box B. So it seems logical to just take both boxes, right? Here's the twist. The alien knows what you'll choose, and if it thinks you'll choose both boxes, it will make sure that there is nothing there in box B. If it thinks you will choose only box B, it will make sure there's a fresh million inside. But how does it know? What if it could create simulations of you to test your decision-making? What if you're in a simulation right now? With this thinking in mind, you're encouraged to just choose box B. Always. Even if the alien tells you you chose wrong and you get nothing. You stick to your guns because 
it is possible that you are not the real you at that moment. And if the virtual you chooses B, then the alien will think real you will also choose B, and it will make sure you get a million dollars. Are you confused yet? In the basilisk version of this experiment, you're presented with two boxes as well. But B isn't a win in this case. In fact, you hope to God that box is empty. Box A is committing your life to the basilisk. And B is maybe damnation. Your options again are to take both A and B, or just take B. If the AI thinks you will take just box B, it will make sure that you are damned. If it thinks you will choose A and B, then you are spared eternal torture in a digital hell. If you're familiar with Pascal's wager on whether or not to believe in God, then you get the foundation of this concept. It's just a bit more twisted because the AI knows what you will decide and has tested you or is testing you in simulations. Good luck fooling it. But you may be wondering, why would we make a malevolent AI in the first place? Remember what I said about optimizing civilization? Perhaps the AI was not supposed to be malevolent at all. Maybe it is truly intended for good and sees itself as bettering mankind. But in order to do its job, it needs to come into existence in the first place. So if you don't help it exist, then you are bad and thus deserve punishment. So, now that you know, what will you decide? So, what did you two think? Pretty scary stuff, huh? Timothy? Dan? Well, I guess we'll go to commercial again. Hello, listener. You're listening to 88.5 CJSR-FM, radio that moves you. Voted the best variety radio station in Canada for the year 2077. You might be wondering how CJSR has survived in this age of artificial intelligence and flying cars. And that is through the generous donations of listeners such as yourself. To donate, call 780-492-2577 or go to cjsr.com slash donate. Thank you and have a great day. And I'm back. Still alone. You know, they probably just turned off their cameras, so I can't see how terrified they are. It's just a stupid thought experiment. There's no such thing as an all-powerful AI that can reach into the past and destroy anyone who opposes it. Guys? Come on, this isn't funny.
don't forget to donate this fun drive to keep radio voices like theirs alive. <laughs>